for the job seekers, don't be disheartened by the knockbacks. Believe in yourself. Know yourself. So thinking about where you want to apply yourself. If you know yourself, you know your traits, your characteristics, and most especially your strengths, then you're going to be at least on the right path. We don't always know exactly what we want to do, but it is important to know what you don't want to do. Renata Bernardi, and this is the Job Hunting Podcast, where I interview experts and professionals and discuss issues that are important for job hunters and those who are working to advance their careers. So make sure that you subscribe and follow, and let's dive right in. In this episode, you and I have the pleasure of speaking with Angela Ryan, a global business partner and director for a division of a large fintech multinational based in Singapore. Angela shares her inspiring career journey, which led her to move from Australia to Singapore and how she eventually found a job there. We also discuss why it's important for her to advocate for disability, inclusion and diversity in the workplace. Angela also provides valuable insights into the world of fintech and life as an expat. I know that many of you are interested in these topics. So join me as we delve into Angela's experiences and gain expert advice on career transitions and thriving away from your home country and in a new industry, and in her case, Singapore and fintech. Ready? Let's go. Thank you so much. Thank you, really, for signing up for this. I always wanted to have somebody that's based in Southeast Asia because I do have clients in Singapore and Hong Kong and Japan. So it's really nice to finally have my first guest from Asia. So that's really good. One of the first things that I wanted to start off with is to give our listeners a little bit of info about you, and then you can go on from there. So you were the global business partner and director for a division of a large financial technology multinational. And even though you're originally from Australia, you're based in Singapore now. And before taking this role, you had several roles in HR, both in fintech and tech and telco. And you have been in Southeast Asia for quite some time, right? The other thing that I think is really interesting about you, Angela, that I want to tap into is the fact that you co-chair a disability inclusion network. And it seems that you have, you know, various other roles in diversity and inclusion organizations. So I'd love to talk to you about that. What else can you share with us about your career story? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in a very small country town in rural New South Wales in Australia. And when I say small, it was less than a thousand people. So very small. I had, I would say, fairly limited scope in terms of different careers that were available. Because I think when you're a kid, you tend to look around you and see what other people are doing, what other grown-ups are doing, and you know, work out what might be of interest to you as you grow and as you study. So I wanted to be a chef and I wanted to be a photographer and I wanted to do a whole bunch of things. And, you know, I progressed away from the small country town through bigger and bigger towns, eventually found my way to Melbourne. 
So the city I lived in before I moved to Singapore was Melbourne. And I didn't think I would stay in Melbourne for as long as I did. I was there for about 13 years. And for those who are not from Australia, Melbourne is probably one of the chillier cities in Australia. And probably here now, Angela. (laughs) (laughs) I like warm weather, I like summer. So I thought, well, I'll probably end up in Queensland or maybe Sydney. But I stayed in Melbourne and I love it, maybe because I'm a coffee addict like so many other (laughs) Melbourneites. So I studied in Melbourne. I found myself progressing through to university and I was very interested in international development and I did an undergraduate degree in sociology and through that I also studied HR so there were business subjects that I studied as part of that degree and I was introduced to human resource management which is what I fell in love with and I never looked back. So I then did postgraduate study once I started working and progressed through a number of different organisations, first starting in customer service. So there was an interview that I went for straight after uni and the lady who interviewed me asked me what I would like to do and I was applying for a customer service role because I needed to pay the rent like everybody else and I said well I'd really love to do HR because that's what I studied and that's what I enjoyed at uni and within three months I was in the HR department so that was awesome. Fantastic and what do you think are the strengths that you have personally that have contributed to your success in HR? I do think that bravery helps a lot. Certainly the first role that I had was a generalist role and I did everything A to Z from recruiting full spectrum, from helping with designing the job description, posting the job description, interviewing, selecting, you know, partnering with the hiring manager to make sure they'd selected the right person. I did investigations, a whole range of activity. There wasn't really anything I wasn't involved in. And in many ways, that was a fantastic role because although at times I was definitely in over my head, I didn't really know what I was doing. It was a great way to learn and I wanted to learn. I was like a sponge and I was just brave enough to take anything on, even though I wasn't always feeling confident or I wasn't always going in knowing all the answers or having done it before, but I was willing to give it a go. And I think that in many circumstances, that willingness to try and that willingness to have a go definitely adds to people's credibility when they're at work, even if they don't have all the answers. I love your answer so much. I'm about to start teaching at Monash University. I I do it every year. It's an elective in the master's program that's taught intensely during winter. And one of our workshops is about courage. You mentioned bravery, but you know, it's same same thing. People, I think confidence is overrated and people often believe that they need to be confident when all they need is actually to be courageous. They need to be brave mm-hmm. enough to kickstart their career if they're a young graduate or change sectors or change careers completely, you know, at whatever age. You don't get confident and then start doing it. First, you need to be brave. <laughs> and then, yes. you know, the confidence comes from the skills and the experience that you get over time, right? So that's such a great yes. answer. Yeah. And then I suppose that that strength of yours, bravery, may have made it easier for you to move overseas. What is the difference between being a professional in your home country, like Australia, and being an expat in a country like Singapore? 
Sure. So in Singapore, I think one of the noticeable things is you go from, for example, myself in Australia being part of what you might call a majority to then in the Singapore context being a minority. For me, that is not a problem, but I know that for certain people that might be a problem and so how to overcome that. And I do think that relationship management and networking are two really valuable skills which can help you overcome those kinds of challenges. And I think for anyone who has moved overseas or even to a new city, like similar to my earlier experience where I moved from a little country town to a big city and the differences that you have to overcome. Similarly, when you move overseas, uh, you need to adapt, you need to be open-minded and you need to be curious. And so I think for me, that helped a lot. I did notice differences in terms of how people operated. So I found that with my own professional practice in Australia, it's very much tied to or anchored with legislation. So the Occupational Health and Safety Act, the Fair Work Act and so on, different awards, state to state differences. For Singapore, there wasn't any of that. But obviously, as you grow and you may maybe have a regional role, you're covering lots of countries. So the sorts of skills that I learned in Australia, where I assess the situation What are the differences from one state to another or a territory to a state within Australia? Similarly, in my APAC role or roles, we have to assess, you know, what are the differences between countries? And of course, there are many. So I think that if, you know, thinking about singularly country-centric roles where you're covering one country, compared to Australia, it might be a little more simple from a legislative perspective perspective, unless, for example, you're in somewhere like India, which has a lot more diversity, many states and different rules, depending on where you are, just like Australia. So I do think that there are professional differences, there are social differences. Again, being curious and open-minded and being brave and participating, I guess the things that I think I have made an effort to ensure that I'm doing, and I think they do make a Yes, that's so important. So two things that you touched on that I really want to reinforce because I see that with my clients as well. One is, you know, moving into a new country and, you know, in addition to starting a job, which is already stressful, feeling like a fish out of their own normal, like a different fish tank. (laughs) How do you say it? Like you're a big fish in a small tank. Now you're a small fish in a big tank. It changes the status quo and your ability to navigate social interactions and your knowledge about not only the new organization that you are working in which is normal even if you don't change countries that you don't know how to navigate the politics but if you move countries it's the whole context right so let's start there like how would you advise somebody moving to a new country to optimize that you know first year where there's just so much learning to do I think it's important to try to be relaxed and absorb I worked right up until I moved, so I didn't really have time or a break to be able to spend a lot of energy and time researching uh, the new market for me. 
I, I spend a little bit of time online looking at what job opportunities might exist. Um, but other than that, I really moved over on a wing and a prayer because I was what you might call a trailing spouse. Oh, okay. So you didn't move for a job. Your husband moved for a job and you followed. That's so common. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So I needed to find a replacement for myself in the role that I held in Melbourne. So I came a few months after my husband so that I had filled that role before I left. And so I arrived in Singapore without a job. And in some ways that was good because I really needed a break. <laughs> I was happy to have a little bit of time off. But it was 2008 and the global economic crisis was taking oh, off. Wow. Yes. <laughs> so, Terrible time. <laughs> it was not an easy time. I was also trying to get pregnant. So I was looking forward to having a first child. And by the time I ended up going for a job interview, which was about four to five months after I had arrived, I was already pregnant. And I remember going for the interview and letting them know that I was pregnant and saying, look, you know, I understand if this might sway your opinion about whether you want to hire me. And I totally understand that, but I want to be transparent and make sure you're aware. And they still hired me anyway, which was great. And I'm a big advocate of trusting people. And in some ways I felt, and I'm sure this applies to many people, you want to be your honest and genuine self when you go for an interview. And if people like you, they like you and they'll hire you. And if you're not the right fit, whether it's just at that time or, or for the particular needs that the company have at that time, that's okay, just keep going. So I think for me, that perseverance, like not feeling like the first few knockbacks or even the first 20 knockbacks are gonna be the story for the rest of your experience to keep on going, keep your head high, believe in yourself, believe in your capabilities and you will find the right place. And the right place will find you. And Angela, was that the first job you applied for or were you knocked back as well? No, okay, good. I will oh, I, apply I, that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like telling everybody on this podcast that that is part and parcel of job hunting. You have to be resilient, right? Yes. No, definitely. I had applied for quite a lot of roles. Mm -hmm. And of course, not having lived in Singapore, not having worked in a role that covered countries outside of Australia, the common response was you don't have local experience, you don't have local experience, you don't have regional experience. Of course, what I did recognise is that I had adaptable skills. Yes. And experience that would work in different areas and that are relatable no matter what location you're in. So that's why I guess I kept telling myself and I tried not to be disheartened by the responses that I was getting because yeah. I believed that eventually that would be recognised. Yes, that was actually the second point I wanted to bring up and reinforce because a lot of professionals sometimes self-select themselves out of pursuing a dream of moving overseas or they find themselves overseas and stuck because they can't overcome the barrier of the lack of local experience. And you were mentioning before that you had all of that experience with the Australian industrial relations laws, for example, but then you moved to Singapore and it's completely different. And that happens in many different areas of expertise, right? How would you recommend people and professionals overcome that situation, that issue? Sure. I think there's a few ways and means. I, I think that 
again, identifying and highlighting your transferable skills. So ability to communicate effectively, ability to develop working relationships, ability to network, all those and there's, there's many more. There's a list of a, a thousand adjectives that you could go through that are reflective of those sorts of transferable skills that are useful. But I think also where you have the opportunity to get involved in projects in your current role that expose you in some way to what it is that you want, that is a great way to gain not only reach, but also the experience. It also means that you're expanding your network. You've got more visibility. There's so many benefits from doing that. And it's one thing that I've always recommended to folks who've been asking the question, what can I do? That that would be my top recommendation yeah. is to go out and find those projects, go out and find that activity, even if it's volunteering and outside of your current role. That's still a great opportunity. And in Singapore, where you live now, is a great hub for expats, right? So I'm assuming that there is flexibility from employers in accepting people from all over the world based on their skills and what they will bring to Singapore's businesses. Now that you are, I mean, you're still working in HR and I'm assuming still in charge of hiring, what are employers in Singapore looking for when they're looking at the expat job market? Sure. So the skills definitely need to be there. I think that probably the challenge in Singapore is that similar to Australia in many ways, although geographically Singapore is much smaller than Australia and even from a population perspective, it's also much smaller, about a quarter of the size. The pool is small considering the very dynamic job market and Singapore is a hub for multinationals in the region. And when you have hub locations, you have the need to connect with headquarters And those headquarters could be in Europe, they could be in North America, they could be anywhere in the world. And so that connectivity often requires perhaps what I call a bridge, right? And that bridge is quite often a person. That little slice of headquarters comes to the hub and helps to bridge any gaps that might exist, whether it's just from a communication perspective or some kind of company nuance perspective. So... Yes, Singapore, for that reason, is an amazing, dynamic and diverse location. And it's one of the reasons why I moved here because of that. It's amazing reflection of what exists in Asia. So you have representation here from across the region, people from all over Asia live in Singapore and people from all over the globe live in Singapore. And To me, that brings opportunity. Again, your ability to network, your ability to gain exposure to large multinationals, you can get that here in Singapore. It's extremely valuable and it is an amazing location. How is it now post-pandemic with the ability to work remotely? You know, are people still moving to Singapore or have you been seeing or doing in your company hiring of hybrid professionals that are working for the Singaporean organization but living in their home countries? Is that happening? 
Yes, I think that generally because of taxation laws, most multinationals are taking a more cautious approach. I think for a period of time, there was lots of headlines around, you know, companies with the work anywhere philosophy. But I think what was missing (laughs) in the fine print, and people love the headlines and they might read the headlines and then (laughs) move on to another article, is that you do trigger tax liability of course. if you spend enough time in the location where you're working. And if, you, as a, if you're an employee and not self-employed, that does mean, of course, that your employer is also attracting a tax liability. So that fact is a big influencer with regard to flexibility for organisations because they need to be mindful of their tax obligations and they need to be mindful that the individual is also mindful of their tax obligations. So I would say that in Singapore, the flexibility to work in a hybrid environment is more looking at maybe working from home versus working in the office. There's still a lot of that going on. But in terms of working anywhere, I would say that there are probably very few organisations that have adopted that holistically. It's probably more the folks that work in the gig economy or, you know, independent contractors that have that agility and can take that approach because they're managing their own tax for themselves. Yes, it's so interesting. Over the weekend, I got a question on LinkedIn. So it was a message that was sent to me from a podcast listener saying, oh, you know, I'm looking at jobs overseas. Have you heard of anyone using those VPN sort of solutions to (laughs) help them look for work overseas. And I think that that's very interesting because, of course, if you're looking with Google, it knows that, for example, that I'm in Melbourne and it doesn't show me the opportunities in, let's say, Singapore or Hong Kong or New York and so forth. So I think people are thinking more globally. I also see a lot of, especially in the past three years, a lot of people going back to their home countries, be it Australia or US. You know, I've helped a lot of professionals move back to their home countries because of what happened during the pandemic, but also a lot of people trying to fill their bucket lists, (laughs) you know, the dreams that had been postponed or forgotten. Now people are, you know, making sure that those dreams come to fruition, either by moving to regional areas, doing sea changes or making plans to work overseas, which especially because I'm based in Australia, so many Australians want to do. So that's yeah. really interesting. Yes, I think Australia is quite far from most places. So when you like compared to a place like Singapore, where you feel like you're kind of in the center of a lot of different places. And maybe if you're based in Dubai, you probably feel similarly. And Australia is the distance. There's an amazing amount of things to do and stuff to see within Australia. But if you want to go outside of that, you have to fly very far. So I think that I can very much understand, you know, the desire to at least for a temporary period of maybe a few years be based somewhere else so that you can more easily explore other parts of the world without having to take a 10 or 12 hour flight. Yes. No, it's really wonderful when I work with clients on helping them move to countries that I have never worked with, for example. So it's such a great coaching partnership because I am giving them a lot of 
advice and strategic planning on how to do it. I've done it myself. So, of course, I have that lived experience. But they are telling me so much about that country that I have no idea <laughs> that I don't know. So that's how, you know, it makes for such a great partnership. I love working with clients that are moving. Now, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about fintech, because that's not a super interesting area that I see, you know, my clients really interested in knowing more about. Sometimes I don't think they know what they're getting themselves into. <laughs> so as somebody who has worked in other sectors and you're now in fintech, how would you explain, you know, imagine you were at a barbecue. How would you explain fintech to somebody that doesn't know anything about fintech? Sure. I, I often get that question when someone says, what industry am I in? And I say fintech and I get a blank look back. <laughs> I say <laughs> financial technology. Yeah. So the first thing is fintech equals financial technology. And honestly, if you're in financial services, which is a massive industry that these days, you know, it's a, a very dominant industry along with tech, it's hard not to be somehow in financial technology because the technology now in the whole financial services space is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's not hard to see why. I think if everybody thinks about the transitions that have occurred even in the last 20 years, it's been significant. So growing up, uh, I was born in the 70s and, and growing up in the Me 70s, too. we still had yeah, <laughs> we still had physical banks and you'd go into the bank with your little book and speak to the teller and you'd get your cash out. Then came ATMs and that certainly you know, blew a hole in the concept of the physical, the need for a physical bank. But an ATM in itself is still you know, a physical thing. And now we're, you know, much more in the digital space where even ATMs feel a little bit redundant these days because people are walking around with digital wallets and the space of payments in particular. So putting banking aside, the space of payments is a never ending story of evolution and change. If you think about your own experiences, whether it's, you know, downloading an app to book your next holiday or to find your next flight and your ability to pay right there and then for that. You know, that at one stage was unthinkable, but now we can do it. We can do it securely and we can do it with trust most of the time. <laughs> we still need to be cautious, yes. but there is so much advancement and change, particularly in the area of payments. And I think that will continue. Yeah. You just have to look at examples like Alibaba, Amazon, you know, these companies are massive and it's all around money transactions, you know, exchange right. of goods, but exchange of money and how people pay. And of course, during the pandemic, this was important, right? So a lot of the people that I work with were considered essential workers for that reason, because of course, people were at home, they were paying for almost everything online. And so we had to make sure that the people we're still there to support those transactions, still there to run the technology that supports those transactions. So I think there's a lot that goes on that, you know, people don't really know what's going on behind the scenes and how it all works, but they trust that it will work and that it'll be safe. And hopefully that can continue and that it, it you know, 
that we will have safety there. But that in itself takes a lot of work and a lot of people to make sure that it is safe. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a dynamic industry, very exciting. It's a very interesting industry because you have those bricks and mortar banks offshooting online banking brands and, you know, hiring for those different brands with a mixed culture. Some of it, you know, I can see from my clients that work there, some of those cultures tend to be very engaging and lively and high energy and others tend to mimic the conservative nature of the sort of the major bank that owns that different brand. And then you have a lot of startups as well, right? Especially here in Australia, especially in Melbourne, quite a lot of uh, fintech startups. And that is an interesting paradigm for professionals that have the expertise that are needed for those sectors, but they come from such large organizations. Like they might come from a, a MasterCard or a Visa. All of a sudden they're applying to work at e-wallet and it's like owned by a you know 20 year old <laughs> graduate yeah. from Melbourne Uni so you know you have those really shifts in status and sort of understanding and relationships how would you advise professionals that are listening to this podcast on their ability to transfer their skills to the fintech sector in a way that really puts them in the best possible light when they're applying for jobs sure so the first thing I would point out is that, you know, and it reflects the point you just made, fintech is full of very different organisations. So everything from the very small and new startup, which might only employ 20 people, to massive organisations, which are above 50,000 employees. There's not a lot of those, but they do exist. And there's everything in between. So there's a lot of variance and in a way that's great there's lots of choices i think that adaptability is probably number one characteristic that i think about when i think about success factors that would get you into financial technology and many other right. industries the reason why i say that is because of the things that i was mentioning earlier whereby you can't really sit still your environment whether it's the systems that you use at work, the applications, the processes, the people that you work with, so the organisation that surrounds you, whether it's your boss, your team, something broader than that, as in your organisational group or your vertical, all of these things can change very quickly and probably will change very quickly. So you do need to be adaptable. You do need to be able to understand how the change will impact you. I think anticipating is helpful. So observe what's going on in the broader economy, what that means for your industry, what that means for your company, and understand then what that means for you. And that could be, for example, paying attention to trends. So what is the trend? Uh, a lot of noise at the moment around things like blockchain and AI. So if that's your interest, you know, dig in and go and seek out more information and maybe do some study to deepen your knowledge in that area if that's your area of interest. Mm -hmm. So it's that adaptability. So understanding that what you're doing today is not what you're going to be doing in maybe even two years time. <laughs> so yeah, being open-minded, being curious. You just mentioned how diverse the fintech industry is, but is it possible for you to forecast what sort of professionals the fintech industries will be looking for in the next 12 to 
24 months as they grow you know i'm thinking about giving some people some tips of a sector that they, they may not have considered as their job hunting but you know maybe they could now that they've listened to this episode an area that has from what i've seen and i can go back to even 2008 with this observation so it's not new but solutions architect is one role that comes to mind where no matter which country I'm looking at, and I cover about 40 countries in my role, no matter which country, those roles are hot jobs. And they have been, even when I left Melbourne, they were hot jobs back then. And I remember struggling to find solutions architects with an IT client that I had in Melbourne for the longest time. It's a highly technical role. And if you have those skills, particularly the consulting and solutioning ability that matches the technical ability, that those skills are, are very valuable in the market right now. Yeah, well, they're right. I think everybody's looking for a solutions architect. So <laughs> they're young <laughs> professionals listening. I say this because it's a beautiful combination of comm skills and design, understanding of design and planning, but again, with the technical expertise. And you don't necessarily need to have a technical degree, but you have to have a technical understanding to be able to convey messages. You're almost like an agent. You're the middleman, aren't you? You're the middle person between the client. Solutions architects do tend to be quite technical, but if you're not someone who's highly technical or wants to be too far down the technical path, even a project manager. That's what I was going to say, project manager. Okay, yeah. Is again, very, very sought after. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of buoyancy in that, in that field of work in the market because implementing technology is project-driven work. So project managers who can facilitate that, understand what's going on and understand how to manage their role, manage the work that's getting done, get it done quicker. That's very valuable. Yeah, that's so good. Thanks for that. That's, you know, I'll think about that for a few clients. Angela, I wanted to also tap into your interest in the disability advocacy because it's in your bio and I looked at your LinkedIn profile and I couldn't really tell why it was in your bio. Is that a story that you can share with us? Did, did it just sure. happen or do you have like lived experience? Mm-hmm. So I am a co-chair of a disability inclusion network that's through my current employer and that was effectively something that I volunteered myself for. So the opportunity came up. There are many, many inclusion and diversity networks active in the organisation. This one in particular, I felt was particularly important and one that I wanted to commit my time, energy to. And partly it is for my own reason, because I have two boys and one is neurodiverse. And I wanted to contribute in a meaningful way to an environment that makes the world a little more open and educated around neurodiversity or or just disability in general. And rather than seeing it as a blocker or as a negative, trying to see it more as an opportunity. That's how I view it. And whatever I can do in my personal and professional life to advance that, to me, is a good thing. So I feel strongly about it. and, And that's one of the reasons why I'm involved in that work. 
I don't know if you'd be prepared to answer this question or not, but I do have a few I've had in the past and I have currently clients that are neurodiverse and also clients that have physical disabilities. But going into the neurodiversity, because that seems to be an area of interest to you, if somebody, as an example, is on the autism spectrum or has ADHD, would you recommend that they raise that during the interviewing process or at the beginning of their work partnership with their new employer? The reason I say this is because part of the onboarding process and part of the, you know, the initial stages might be a place where a lot of people are looking at you and observing you and you may not want to share it, but if you put it out there, if it's an elephant in the room, is it better to raise it? What would you recommend? You know, especially because you're in HR, I'd love to hear your views. Yeah. I wish there was a an easy, singular answer to that, but I, I don't think there is. I do think that the, you know, it comes down to individual choice and the also trust. There are some organizations which are very proactive and work very hard to ensure true diversity. So they make sure that they are doing what they say they are doing. There are plenty out there that do not. They have policies or slogans, but they don't necessarily invest the resources to to put the work behind it. Mm -hmm. And so I think for individuals making that decision, and it, and it is a, a really tough decision, researching the organisation that you're interviewing with is important to understand what not only what it is that they're saying, but maybe also what it is that they're doing. Mm -hmm. So there are, I was going to say apps, but it's more services perhaps out there like Glassdoor, for example, yes. where you can tap into opinions of people that have worked at the, those organisations and do work at those organisations to see what they're saying about those organisations, to see what people's experiences are. And so I do think doing that kind of homework first and then deciding for yourself what your level of confidence is, mm -hmm. what your level of trust is in those organisations. I would love to think we live in a world where you can trust people 100%, uh, organisations 100% with that disclosure. I really hope that one day we will get there. But I do think that some companies or some individuals when they're interviewing, because of lack of awareness perhaps, would find that an obstacle. There are plenty who wouldn't because I think like with many things, when you open up and you're genuinely, I'll use the word vulnerable, I know that's a very commonly used word these days, to share those sorts of challenges. Quite often what you'll find is maybe the person you're talking to has very similar challenges or has, you know, a brother or a sister or a daughter or a son or mother or father who has the same things and they're understanding. And that's fantastic. So, yeah, so I don't think there's a right or wrong, a yes or no answer, unfortunately. Mm -hmm that question. You're right. It's so tough. I was just remembering when many years ago I was recruiting for a position and the recruiter said, look, I have this wonderful candidate I want you to meet. So I went and I had an interview with her and she said at the end of the interview, after I, I was already wowed by her, she said, look, there's this thing that I want you to know. I have horrible migraines from time to time. I'm managing this with, you know, health pr practitioners and a specialist, but there are days where I can't go to work. 
And she walked out of the room and, and then I had a meeting with the recruiter immediately afterwards. And I said, look, she's amazing. But if I don't hire her, please tell her not to say that to other people. <laughs> and I ended up hiring her. And in fact, she's still at the workplace where I hired her. So she's doing a great job. She was an absolute wonderful professional. And I think she wanted to work harder to prove herself because yes. of her condition and frankly I don't think she took more leave than other people <laughs> I think she, you yeah. know whenever she took a leave I knew exactly that she really needed that time off but yes I saw through the issue and I knew she was going to be a great performer but I was worried about her bringing it up with other employers mm, interesting well, thanks for yes. sharing this with me. And I, actually, thank you for everything, Angela. I mean, in this episode, we touched on being an expat, moving away from your home country, moving into uh, Singapore, a little bit about Singapore, fintech, disability. Really, it's, it's been the most diverse chat I've ever had. Right. So, thank you so much. Is there any final thoughts or advice you would like to share with people that are listening? I think for the job seekers, again, don't be disheartened by the knockbacks. Believe in yourself. Know yourself. So thinking about where you want to apply yourself. If you know yourself, you know your traits, your characteristics, and most especially your strengths, then you're going to be at least on the right path. We don't always know exactly what we want to do but it is important to know what you don't want to do <laughs> so for those people sort of I guess feeling maybe a little lost at times with their career trajectory knowing what you don't want to do is just as important as knowing what you want to do because the world is constantly changing so there's endless different types of roles out there and again another huge number of new roles on the way so so keep going and be great it's actually a great strategy. If you are having trouble figuring out what you want to do, start with what you don't want to do. That is an easier list to make, I have found. Yeah. yeah. All right, my friend. Look, I want to invite you back. So whenever you think you have a great idea or a topic you want to share with the listeners, just email me and we'll have you back. All right? Thank you, Renata. Thank you. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you keep in touch. Please subscribe wherever you found this podcast. And if you're inspired and motivated to keep going, check out other episodes. You can also learn more about my services as a career coach in the episode show notes and on my website, renatabernardi.com. That's R-E-N-A-T-A-B-E-R-N-A-R-D-E.com. Ciao for now.